So for about nine weeks now, we've been going through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book of Ecclesiastes is a very interesting book. It is Solomon's book at the end of his life. And he is kind of telling us what a life lived without God looks like. And he spent his life pursuing Everything that we pursue, he's lived an incredible life. He's pursued wealth, and he's the wealthiest man to ever live. He's pursued pleasure, and he's had more fun than anyone could ever have. He's, he's pursued women and had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And so he's, he's done everything we've ever tried to do, and he's pursued everything man has ever tried to pursue, and he's accomplished it. He's, he's done better than you will ever even imagine doing. And he looks at his life and all these pursuits and all these things and all these pleasures and all this stuff. And he goes, it's pointless. Without God, it's worthless. It's a wasted life. And so he's given us the lessons that he has learned through his life. And this wasn't just something that he noticed at the end of his life. He didn't just get to the end of his life and think, you know what, I've I've lived a pretty good life and it was pretty pointless without God. This was a ministry God called him to. God told him, I want you to spend your life pursuing things that people pursue and accomplish things that people want to accomplish so you can look back and tell them that it's pointless, that it's empty, that if you don't have God, you've got nothing. And so he's telling us by the end of his life that anything we seek to find pleasure, to find joy, to find satisfaction, to find fulfillment... If it doesn't have God at the center of it, it's going to leave us empty. It's going to leave us wanting. And he's given us a lot of wisdom and a lot of advice on how to live a life in pursuit of God and how to find joy in everything, even pain. Because even in pain, if God is at the center of it, there's purpose there. There's fulfillment there. There's joy there because you're seeking God in the pain. And so a life lived in pursuit of anything without God will leave you empty, is what Solomon is telling us. So tonight, as we continue looking through this book, we're going to begin looking at chapter number seven, starting in verse number 15. The Bible says, All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. Now, this is, this is Solomon talking. He's smarter than you, he's richer than you, he's better looking than you. He's lived a better life than you. All around, he's better than you. But he's better than me too. So here is Solomon. You know, the, he's, he's awesome. He's done everything. He's accomplished it all. The man who's better than all of us in every way possible, he is talking to us. Again, look at 15. All the things I have seen in, in the days of my vanity, there is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life, In his wickedness, Uh, at, at the center of every religion in the world is the idea of karma. Whatever good you do will come back to you, and whatever bad you do will also come back to you. Every religion, whether it's the the crazy fringe ones like Wicca and the Branch Davidians, or if it's the the more mainstream ones like Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist and Mormon and Jehovah's Witnesses, and even some evangelical Christians. At the center of every belief is if you do good, good will return to you, and if you do bad, bad will happen to you. Religion is built around the teaching that if you follow the religious rules... 
If you do what the religious leaders say to do, then good things happen. You get heaven. You get 72 virgins. You get your own planet to be a god over, and your wife is constantly pregnant having babies for you. Some of them are weird. You get paranoid. Whatever it is, you do good, you follow the rules, and good things happen. But if you're bad, if you disobey the rules of the religion, then bad things happen. You get hell. You get judgment. You get punishment. You get all these bad things that happen because if you do good, good things happen. If you do bad, bad things happen. So every religion, and in fact, even the, the workings of the universe seem to agree with this idea of karma and operate this way. Remember science class? For every action, there is a equal and opposite reaction. That's karma. Whatever you do, the same thing comes back to you. It's the basis of most philosophy. It's the basis of all religions. Now, I know what you're thinking. We're Christians. We don't believe. That's Eastern religion voodoo stuff. We don't believe in that. Want to bet? Somebody is, t- like, I was looking back in my, uh, my Facebook news feed, and I saw that last year at this time, that horrible human being, Larry Nassar, who was convicted of molesting hundreds of little girls, was imprisoned. Not long enough, if you're, you know, I mean, he's never going to come out, but it's still not long enough. He didn't get, so he goes to prison. We get news one day that Larry Nassar got beat to death in prison. It hadn't happened. Darn it. We get news of that. You know what we think? He had it coming. It's what you get. You reap what you sow. And I know this biblical teaching, but we think something bad happens to a bad person. We think, that's right. They deserved it. Something good happens to a good person. We're like, man, you know what? They deserve that. He deserved that raise. He deserved that, ble- he deserved that blessing. Man, he's such a great guy, and God bless him. He deserves that. What if something good happens to a bad person? We get upset about that. Somebody gets off. A couple years ago, there was that guy in, in San Diego or San, I don't know, somewhere out in California who, who raped a girl because she was passed out, and he got, he got three months in jail. People were furious. The judge lost his job because people were so mad because how dare you let something good happen to a bad person? Or a bad thing happens to a good person? Man, how, how could God let bad things happen to good people? He's such a great guy. Why does he have to go through that? So we may not believe, we may not say, oh, we don't believe in karma, but we kind of do. Bad things happen to bad people? Good. Good things happen to good people? Great. Good things happen to bad people? We don't like it. And so what Solomon is saying here is if karma is how the universe operates, If karma is how God operates, then something's broken. He's got two reasons. He's got two problems with the idea of karma. Here's the first problem. He says, I've known people who love Jesus, who love God, who serve God, who live upright. They are good people. And terrible things happen to them. They get sick. They get taken advantage of. They die young. Even the song says, only the good die young. That's why I'm bad. I want to live forever. Amen? But it's like, man, they, they, they die. And it's terrible. But then he goes, and I know good people. I mean, I know bad people, wicked people, terrible people who, who live to be 103 and get rich off of their wickedness. He says, if karma is the way God operates, somebody broke it because it ain't working right. 
So that's his first problem. Karma doesn't seem to be out there because good people hurt and bad people thrive. But he's got a second problem. That's what we're going to spend most of our time on tonight. Look at verse number 16. Be not righteous over much. What he literally just said here. Don't be too good. Don't be too righteous. Let's all stand and be dismissed in a word of prayer because we've accomplished that. Amen. Like, don't be, don't be too good. Gotcha, Solomon. You got it, sir. I'm very good at not being too good, at not being too righteous. But he continues there. Look at verse 16. Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Now, this makes it sound as if righteousness and wisdom should be taken in moderation. Don't be too righteous. Don't be too wise. Just be okay. And most of us think we're okay, right? That's not what Solomon's saying. He sound, it sounds like he's saying, go to church, be faithful to church, only cuss in your car. You know, but don't be too, too holier than thou. Come to church, you know, tithe and just watch pornography secretly at your house. Don't let people know how bad you are. Kind of, you know, don't be too holy. Don't be too righteous. Just kind of be middle of the road. You're a good citizen. You're a good person. Don't be telling people you're, you got the only way to heaven. Don't be wearing these I love Jesus t-shirts or love God, love other servants. Don't be wearing those out in public, letting people think that you love God and you're the only way to, to heaven. And don't be holier than thou. But that's not what he's teaching. What he's teaching is probably going to hurt a little. Let's read it again. Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? So, according to Solomon, there is a rightness. There is a righteousness that is wrong. There is a righteousness that hurts you and hurts others. Solomon is attacking the belief and the thought of us being right and us being righteous in our own eyes. He's attacking self-righteousness. Now, self-righteousness is a hard topic to preach because those that need to hear it think someone else needs to hear it. I start talking about self-righteousness, people go, That's, he needs to talk about David needs to hear that because David's very self-righteous. And so the self-righteous get puffed up. And, and so if when I was talking about self-righteousness, you thought about somebody else, I'm not thinking about them. God's thinking about you. So I say, you know, what, what is self-righteousness? Self-righteousness is defining our rightness or our holiness or our righteousness by what we don't do. I don't watch that bad TV show, so I'm, I'm good. I don't cuss in front of my kids, so I'm good. I don't get caught being bad, so no one knows I'm bad, so I'm good. So when you measure your righteousness by what you don't do, your righteousness is coming at the expense of someone else. That's why it's so hard to witness to people in America because we've defined wickedness as some blatant, evil, horrible thing, some big evil. Look, this week uh, in New York, they passed that terrible nine-month abortion law. We look at that and we think, man, they are wicked, hard, and yet, yet they are. 
I'm not saying, oh, don't bless them. They, don't, they got good intentions. No, they don't. They're horrible, horrible people. Amen? But we look at them and think, who could do that? I'm not as wicked as them, so I'm pretty good. I would never have an abortion. I definitely wouldn't have one at nine months because that's terrible. So I'm not that bad, so I'm pretty good. We base our righteousness on how wicked other people are. I don't kill people. I don't murder school children. I don't steal. I may cheat on my tax a little bit, but it's taxes. It's Uncle Sam. Nobody cares. So I'm not that bad. So we compare our lives to huge acts of evil and since we're not doing those things, we must be righteous. We must be okay. We must be good. We define our righteousness based on other people's evil without ever thinking that we may have wickedness in our own heart. Jesus hated defining righteousness this way. He tells a story in Luke chapter 18 that shows how much he hates self-righteousness. In this story... There's a, a super Christian at church. Man, he's got, he's got the, the suit on and the tie. He's got to wear a tie. He's carrying his large print King James Bible. He's singing all the hymns at the top of his voice. Holy, holy, holy. I mean, every time the preacher says anything about someone else's sin, he, amen, preacher. He's a super Christian. And in the back, there's this guy who's just sobbing. He's just broken. He's just, and he's, he's distracting everyone else because he's crying so hard. And the service is over. The altar call comes. The, the old super Christian gets up, comes to the altar, stands up and says, God, I'm so glad I'm not as bad as that guy crying in the back. He's wicked. I don't watch the stuff he watches. I don't go to the places he goes. He probably steals from me. I don't do that. Lord, I fast three times a day. Lord, I'm a super Christian. Lord, you were lucky. I am so glad I'm so righteous. And the guy who's crying in the back can't even come forward, can't even lift his eyes. He says, God, be merciful to me. Jesus says, who do you think went home justified? He says, I'll tell you who. The guy in the back who couldn't even lift his eyes and just said, Lord, be merciful to me. That guy was righteous. That guy went home justified. Super Christian here? Nope. He's got so much wickedness in his own heart he doesn't want to even look at. He is self-righteous. So there's a righteousness that is wrong, and that bothers Solomon. Every time he tries to be right, he becomes self-righteous. Look at how he ends in verse 16. He goes, why shouldst thou destroy thyself? The wrong kind of rightness will kill your soul. But he keeps going in verse 17. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> be not much over much wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldst thou die before thy time? He goes, when, when I try to pursue righteousness and holiness and I try to do good, I end up becoming self-righteous and I find myself in a place that Jesus finds offensive. And so I become self-righteous and I set myself up to become smug because I think I'm better than everyone else. And so when I pursue righteousness, it goes bad for me. I end up following some man-made rules that, that bring no joy. He goes, but then I don't want to be self-righteous as then I try to do nothing, and I don't try to be wicked, and my soul dies there too. He goes, I can't find the right balance. When I try to do good, I find myself 
self-righteous and smug and arrogant. When I say, I'm not going to do that, I find myself being wicked. Because I, I can't find the right balance. So his, his advice is very confusing. Don't be too righteous, but don't be too wicked, because both will destroy you. Now, that's it's not very helpful. Try to be in the middle of the road. That's not what he's saying. He continues. Look at verse number 17. I mean, verse number 18. It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this righteousness. It's good you try to take righteousness. Yea, also from this, from wickedness withdrawal. So it's good you want to be righteous. It's good you want to get away from wickedness. He goes, from wickedness withdraw not thine hand. For he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. So here's what he's saying. It is good to pursue righteousness and avoid wickedness, be in the world, but not of the world, as Paul tells us. But look at verse number 19. Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in a city. So Solomon says that the man who is wise... The man who fears God will figure out how to be the right kind of right while avoiding the wickedness of the world. Sounds easy, right? Wrong. Because verse 19, he says that anyone that can figure out how to do that is smarter than 10 kings. And that's impossible. He keeps piling on. Look at verse 20. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. He goes, there is not a person on earth that can do it. There is not a person on earth who can live the right kind of righteous life and avoid the wickedness of the world. Here's, here's the wisest man to ever live just told us, strive for righteousness, avoid wickedness, but just so you know, you're never going to be righteous enough. You're never going to get wicked, get away from the wickedness. It's impossible. He goes on later on to expose these self-righteous tendencies in all of us. Look at verse number 21. And take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. For oftentimes also thine own heart knoweth that thou thyself likewise have cursed others. You know, you know how angry you get when you find someone's been talking bad about you behind your back? When someone's been putting you down, running you down to everybody in the church or in your neighborhood or in your workplace, you find out they've been talking bad about you. It just, it betrays you. Whenever that happens, our first response is, I wonder if they, it should be, I wonder if there's any merit to this. When someone starts criticizing you, our first thought should be, I wonder, is there any merit to their criticism? But that's not our first response. Our first response is, you want to go? You want to talk bad about me? I'll talk bad about you. And we, we want to retaliate to them. So Solomon is saying that we need to be careful that we don't throw a fit every time someone treats us badly because that's exactly how we treat other people. Say, when someone's talking bad about you, just remember you were talking bad about someone else not too long ago. You did the exact... So when someone does you wrong, you did somebody else wrong, so you... You don't have the right to get that upset. In the moment that someone hurts us or talks bad about us, we should think about it. We think about all the good we do and we try to defend ourselves when deep in our heart we know the very thing we are getting angry at are things we have done to others. That's self-righteousness. No one is right because even in our right, we are wrong. 
Then he says, I've been trying to figure this out, but I've not been able to. Look at verse number 23. He says, all this I have proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. He tried to figure out how to be righteous and not give in to the wickedness, but he, he just he couldn't do it. Look at verse 24. That which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? The drive we have to be right, the drive we have to be righteous, to have a right standing before God is confusing. Because when we try to do right, it goes wrong on us. And if we do nothing, we fall into wickedness. So whatever we do doesn't work. So what are we supposed to do? Now, what we need to understand about the Bible is oftentimes the Old Testament will ask a question that the New Testament answers. So what Solomon is saying here, he's asking this. He's asking, since no one can be right, and since the right we try to do ends up being the wrong kind of right, is there any hope for us to be right at all? Are we just doomed? Romans chapter 8 answers the question. So turn over there. Romans chapter 8. So we all know that karma isn't working. We try to stay away from what we view as bad and cling to what we view as good, but it leaves us unsatisfied. It leaves us unable to find the joy we so desperately need. It leaves us empty. And in the middle of all this striving and failing and hurting and wondering and longing, God says love comes to us and does for us what we couldn't do. Look at verse, Romans 8, chapter 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So Solomon says, we try to be right, we try to be righteous, we try to do good, and it's wrong because we're self-righteous, and God hates self-righteousness, and God despises righteousness in our own eyes, so we try to do good, and we end up messing up. And so we think, well, I just won't do anything, and we end up falling into wickedness. So how in the world can we find the righteousness we so desire to have? And Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he goes, hey, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are righteous because of him. If you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation to you. Something has happened in Jesus that's removed the philosophy of karma and the rule of law in our lives. We are worthy and deserving of condemnation because even in our righteousness, we are wrong. We deserve condemnation. We deserve punishment. We are do it, but in Jesus, there's no condemnation for us. So that means that whatever is in our past is in the past. Whatever terrible skeletons you have in your closet, they're gone. They're taken care of. They're forgiven. They're, they're, they're forgotten. Jesus is not in love with some future version of you, Jesus is in love with you. The messed up, broken, sinful, self-righteous, 
don't know how to get away from wickedness, person you are, Jesus is in love with you. And if you've accepted him as your savior, if his death, burial, and resurrection has paid your sin debt, then in him, all that stuff you've done, there's no condemnation for it. You are completely forgiven, not because of you, because your righteousness is wrong, because of his righteousness. Your past is forgiven, your present in love, and your future is secure no matter what happens to you. You can't stumble and mess it up because what happened in Jesus that sets a biblical Christianity apart from all other things. Look at verse number two in Romans chapter eight. For the law of the Spirit is life in Christ Jesus, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. We are born into the idea of the law, which is basically karma. Obey the law, do good, earn righteousness, earn heaven, get rewarded. Do bad, break the rules, get punished, but you can never do good anyway. So no matter what you do, you're going to get punished anyway. But God, through Christ, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, has placed the law of sin and death with the law of life, has replaced the law of sin and death with the law of life and peace. We no longer have to obey the law of God because he's fulfilled the law of God. We, now, I'm not saying go out and do whatever you want to do. We're going to get to that. I, but we don't have to obey the law. The law of death has no meaning to us anymore because if we have Christ as our Savior, we have the law of life and of peace. Look at verse number three. For what the law could not do, karma, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So in the middle of this broken down system of karma and law and death, love comes in and changes everything. God comes in the flesh. He absorbs the punishment for your sins. He absorbs the reaction of your action. You sinned, he took the punishment. You did wrong, he took the punishment for you. He pays the bill for your sin. All of them. Your past sins, the present sins you're struggling with right now, and the future sins you're going to do tomorrow, or let's be honest, tonight in the parking lot. He has paid the debt for all of them. And he does what you could never do, and he does it out of love for you. The law was weak and unable to do it, so God, in his love, did it for us. That's the difference between true biblical Christianity and every other religion out there. We don't ascribe to karma. We ascribe to grace. So here's the lesson that Solomon is trying to get us to understand and live with tonight. Stop trying to define your righteousness. Stop trying to define your standing with God on what you don't do. Stop looking at your life and saying, I'm not as bad as that person, so I'm right with God. 
Don't try to define yourself by what you do, by how good you are, because there is nothing good in you at all. All your righteousness is as filthy rags. If you, you are good because of him. You are righteous because of love, because of grace. And Solomon is telling us, recognize that and give grace to everyone else. We've been given so much. Why are we so stingy to give it to others? Recognize that and stop looking down on people who don't meet your standard of holiness, who don't do what you think they ought to do. Recognize that and get rid of your self-righteousness. Recognize that and praise Him and thank Him for doing what you couldn't do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.